0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the career criminal who became The Guardian's prisons correspondent. Just a quick warning before we start. Some of the stories discussed in this episode do focus on suicide and sexual abuse. In 2003, The Guardian hired a rookie reporter who had an unusual CV. Eric Allison was 60 years old and his old job had come to quite an abrupt finish.
2: My career, I suppose, ended in 1996 when I got seven years for stealing a million pounds from Barclays Bank uh, in St Anne's Square. And to cut a long story short, we then counterfeited two cheques uh, half a million pounds each to a, a bank account in Gibraltar and the other one in Geneva. But, you know, you win some, you lose some, and about 18 months later, we were nicked for it.
1: As he said, in a lecture he delivered to charity workers, Eric spent decades working as a forger. He was fully committed to his life of crime. In fact, after coming out of prison, he had his eyes on one more big job. That is, until an advert in the paper caught his attention.
2: The Guardian advertised for a prisons correspondent and they said that uh, applications from ex-offenders would be welcome. The CV was all about my prison protest, you know, and my prison sentences. And they said, well, if you want it, the job's yours.
1: Luckily for The Guardian, he had things he wanted to say. With a lifetime of contacts in the law-breaking world, in the prison system, and first-hand experience of what it was like to be banged up. Eric Allison was like no other journalist in British media. When he died last month, he was still the only prisons correspondent in the national press.
2: My passion at the moment is to tell people about prison and why uh, it doesn't work how we treat prisoners whilst they're in prison will have a massive effect on how they treat us when they get out, so we should know a lot about it.
1: In his 19 years at The Guardian, Eric exposed difficult truths about prisons and reported on terrible abuse and miscarriages of justice. He earned trust, he won awards, and he made a real difference. From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, what Eric Allison wanted us to know about crime, punishment and prisons. Helen Pitt, you're The Guardian's Northern Editor and you worked with Eric Allison in The Guardian's Manchester office for almost a decade. Do you remember the first time you met him and what did you make of him at the time?
3: Yeah, I really remember the first time that I met Eric. I mean, his reputation always preceded him. We all knew that he was our prison's correspondent and that he'd spent 16 years in prison. I was a little bit nervous meeting him, but then it's funny when you meet him, he's kind of an underwhelming looking person in that he's very, you know, very small. I'm talking about him in the present tense, but um, small, kind of slightly wizened. He looks like somebody who had indeed been smoking since he was 11, Right. (laughs) Uh, kind of (laughs) dark shaded glasses. Uh, I think he was wearing his favourite salmon tank top and he was immediately very, very friendly to me. And um, he took great pride in being friendly. That was one of the things that really mattered to him. And um, he was always curious about young reporters asking about their lives.
1: Oh, wow. And so he grew up in Gorton, which isn't too far from where the Guardian's northern office is. And he was Lancashire born and bred and very proud as far as I know. What else can you tell me about his roots and his early life? So Eric
3: was born in December 1942 in Gorton, which is a very working class suburb of East Manchester. Uh, He was the youngest of four brothers. He was really, really close to his mum, Nellie, didn't really see eye to eye with his dad. He always said he was the only criminal in the family. And he used to say, oh, I doubt any of the rest of them have even got a speeding conviction. He absolutely hated school. He was regularly getting the strap from the head teacher, so there was corporal punishment in those days. He left school with no qualifications. And um, for those listeners who don't know about Gorton, if you've ever watched the Channel 4 series, Shameless, Uh from the kind of early noughties... It was filmed on Eric's estate, Um, but he was fiercely protective of Gorton, despite its dubious reputation. He absolutely loved it. He used to say it was like United Nations in terms of the multiculturalism of the area, and he knew absolutely everybody.
1: So when did he first show an interest in crime, as it were?
3: It was at least from the age
1: of five. He just absolutely loved stealing things.
3: And he did say um, that he thought that this stammer, his stutter, had something to do with it. But he didn't have very much kind of self-worth. And then when he used to nick things, he had stuff that the other kids at school or on the estate didn't have. And that made him feel uh, proud, you know, he had kind of something to boast about.
2: started stealing from a very early age. Don't know really to this day why I started stealing, but I did from a very, very early age. Uh, first court appearance aged 11, housebreaking. Second court appearance aged 13, I'd run away from home, broken into a day nursery, pavilion breaking and larceny uh, because I stole some biscuits and orange juice. Um, 14, uh, first taste of custody, three month detention centre for stealing a chewing gum machine. Uh, the
3: what
1: did the three months in that detention centre then teach him? It
3: taught him a lifelong lesson, which is that prison doesn't work. And it also instilled in him a lifelong hatred for bullies and particularly people in authority who abuse their powers. There was a very formative incident that happened on his very first day in the detention centre when he arrived and one of the prison guards, or the screws as he always referred to them, barked out at him to uh, say his name. And he managed to say Eric Allison, but he couldn't say Sir. Eric had a terrible stutter in those days and he just couldn't get it out. You know, he was... He was terrified in this really scary new place and he kept on trying to say sir and he couldn't and the prison guard punched him in the face. He got a bloody nose, bloody lip and he did this in front of two police officers who had taken him to prison that day and none of them said a word.
1: That was his first taste of custody but it certainly wasn't going to be his last. Eric, as you said, committed to a life of crime through the 50s, the 60s The 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. What kind of stuff was he getting up to?
3: Eric was primarily um, a thief and he was a fraudster as well. And check fraud was his mainstay. Um, Him and his pals, he always referred to his criminal mates as his pals. One of their things was going to the best golf courses. Um, in the UK, Eric always used to say he'd never played a round of golf, but he'd been to every top golf golf course um, in the UK. One of his pals had all of the golfing gear, and they would sort of stroll into the golf club like they owned it. His pal would go into the changing rooms, make himself at home, and then steal people's checkbooks. Right. Uh, while. Eric would be outside looking for the best cars looking for ones that they could steal and then change the number plates um, on so they used to steal the checkbooks and then they'd use the checks Eric used to say he knew every town in Britain that had at least two post offices because that made it worth his while to go there and to cash the checks.
1: Did Eric ever show any remorse for what he did? How did he justify it? He had his own
3: moral code for who was a good criminal.
2: You know, I'd, I'd, I'd follow the rules, you know, of, of the all-star criminal. I would do the right thing. You know, you don't grasp people up. You, I had my own moral boundary, if you like, which I kept because I knew I was doing wrong. But I thought, well, yeah, but I've got a moral boundary, which I wouldn't step over.
3: Um, and he thought if you didn't commit any violence, then you're basically a good criminal. And because the people he was stealing from were either kind of rich golfers who had not locked their checkbooks away or stately homes... That's how he justified it to himself. So of course there were victims and I'm sure that Eric's crimes did cause misery to people. But if he felt guilty about that, he didn't talk about it openly. What did weigh on him very, very heavily was the effect that it had on his family and particularly his daughters, Kerry and Caroline, who he absolutely loved.
1: And over his lifetime, he did actually go on to spend, I think it's around 16 years in total in prison. What did he say about what it was like to be inside and how prison changed over time?
3: He was very stoical, actually, about his time in prison.
2: And I always say this, you know, I never expected prison to be a holiday camp. I thought it... As an occupational hazard, and I used to follow the adage: "If you can't do the time, don't do the crime." And that applied to me. I never expected an easy time, but I saw
3: he was completely fearless inside. Despite being, I don't know, five foot six or something, he knew how to navigate the prison system because he'd been there so long. But he gained a reputation for himself as being an advocate for other prisoners. He read a lot in prison. He used to read The Guardian in prison, and he knew the law really well. So he would he would advocate for other prisoners. He would read their letters those of whom couldn't read or write. And he was an agitator, basically. He was trying to effect change while inside, as well as once he got on the outside and started working for us.
1: Speaking of on the outside, it's really remarkable learning that he actually managed to escape several times from prison, most famously from Strange Ways. Ellen, how on earth did he do that? I actually got a sort of
3: collector's edition, full-length version of this the night before Eric died. When I went to see him, we were drinking some good white wine and eating smoked salmon as he was in his hospital bed in his in his back room, and he he told me this story again. So basically, it was that on a previous incident uh, when he'd been in prison, him and one of his pals had managed to get hold of a legitimate bail warrant. So. When they were out, uh, outside in the real world, they produced a really good forgery of this bail warrant. And they had this plan, which was like, next time one of us gets nicked, we're going to use this bail warrant to uh, get the other one out. I think Eric was on the run at that time. He got picked up again, was sent to prison. They sent um, somebody down to Strangeways with this uh, forged warrant. And to Eric's uh, slight surprise, it worked. And he walked free. He got a black cab, went to the Midland Hotel, which is a five-star hotel in Manchester, um, had, a, had a good old dinner and then went on the run again.
1: Wow. And then, of course, there's that hard handbrake turn in his life yeah. from career criminal to journalism. And how did that happen? So Eric became a particularly
3: avid Guardian reader in prison. He spent a lot of time in the prison library where they had um, daily newspapers. But he'd been out for a few years on what he was thinking of as his sabbatical from crime. And he saw an advert in The Guardian one day which said that uh, we were looking for a prison's correspondent and uh, we particularly wanted to hire somebody who had actually been in prison. So he applied, got down to the final two. And the then editor, Alan Rusbridger, kind of realised how in the dark uh, most people are about what goes on behind prison walls. He said recently that when he first met Eric, I think Eric talked a million miles an hour, was just sort of chain smoking. It soon became clear to Alan that Eric was extremely intelligent and really, really motivated by getting to the truth and fighting for those people who don't have a voice. Alan Rusbridger made it very, very clear that a condition of his employment was that he. Did not commit any more crimes and didn 't embarrass the guardian
2: and also knew that I, if I made a promise to them, you know that bang that 's the end of this life that i 've had since I was so young, and I try and explain it to people, um, I assume that most of you are law abiding, so it would the change for me was like me asking you to become a professional criminal tomorrow you know and, and I was terrified I was really, really terrified you know going into this and even now I feel you know something of an intruder you know in
1: very early on in Eric's journalism career it was clear that his work was going to be important can you tell us about some of his first pieces how did he get on as a reporter how did he learn the trade
3: when Eric arrived at the Guardian he couldn't use a computer He'd been in prison for most of the 90s, you know, when when many of us got our first Hotmail address. So technologically, he was pretty behind. And he didn't know how to be a news reporter. He was never kind of formally trained. But what Eric didn't need to be taught was instinctively what makes a story and how to make a story compelling. So one of Eric's first investigations was in 2006 when he discovered via one of his sources from inside a women's prison that um, pregnant women were being transported to court in what prisoners called sweat boxes. So there were these security vans which were extremely claustrophobic. There were no uh, facilities on board to go to the toilet. And as a result, um, there were women who were turning up to court who'd soiled themselves. Um, so it was a very degrading situation. So Eric um, wrote a series of articles about this. And as a result, the prison system stopped transporting pregnant women in that way.
1: In Eric Allison's time at the Guardian, he often teamed up with a very experienced features journalist, Simon Hattonston. Morning, Simon. Good morning. Already on the doorstep, like gathering some loot. You need some help. How you
0: <laughs>
1: Bit of Simon's on Simon invited us to his home to talk to us about Eric, who had become a lifelong friend. Thanks for letting us crash. Um,
0: Do you want a drink, tea or coffee?
1: On top of the fireplace, in the living room, the order of service from Eric's funeral was resting on the mantelpiece.
0: And it's a really, really nice picture of Eric. He just looks really lovely and thoughtful on it.
1: Nearby was an Amnesty International Award they'd won together.
0: Do you want me to tell you about yeah, this? Yeah, 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 tell me about that. Okay, so if you look at this, you can see it's quite cracked. It's, in fact, it's really smashed. So when we won this, Eric said to me, give it to me, I'll look after it. Don't worry, I'll look after it. And so I was, well, I'll, I'll probably smash it, so I might as well give it to Eric. So he put it, I mean, this is bonkers, but he put it in between two sheafs of Guardian newspaper. <laughs> yeah, and as he put it in, it slipped out, And smashed on the tube floor. So that is our award, totally smashed. But, you know, we were proud of it.
1: Simon, we're sat down now in your front room. Let's talk about Eric. Now, you worked so closely with him over the years on loads of stories. But can you tell me about when you first met him?
0: We were put together. It was for a... Story about a boy who had killed himself called Adam Rickwood. And in this case, the story was awful. It was horrific. What had happened was the boy had been in a detention centre. He'd done a minor, minor crime. He was 14. And there was a restraint technique that people used to use in prisons. And it's basically flicking the nose really, really powerfully. And it can break the nose. And it's incredibly painful. And they'd done it to him. And it was obviously dead painful, incredibly humiliating. He was already upset and he went and killed himself.
1: It's such a distressing story to work on. Simon, why do you think you and Eric were put together?
0: The reason we were put together, I think, was because we wanted to do a big piece and I'd spent years doing longer pieces and Eric was still quite new to the job and he thought we might get on well. We did really get on well We were both Manx, we were both from Manchester, and even though we'd led really different lives, I think we had things in common, we both, I think, felt sympathy for the underdog instinctively, even though I'd not spent my life nicking stuff and breaking into banks, and Eric was really funny. He had a million stories as well, you know. The time that he escaped from um, he escaped from a stately home in drag, because the team he was working with decided it was much more convincing and likely that a couple would go in to the stately home, and they would be unchallenged. And it turned out that was the case as well.
1: Simon, you and Eric uncovered some really horrific abuses and behaviour in Britain's criminal justice system. In 2011, you broke a story about Medam's Lead Detention Centre in County Durham. Can you tell me about that story and the impact that it had?
0: There are certain stories that you almost remember by people's tears rather than what they said. That was one of them. The first guy we went to meet who was called Kevin. He started by telling his name and his age. And then he just cried and cried and cried. And that story, it was a story that went back to the late 60s. It had happened that there was a guy working in a prison in the kitchens called Neville Husband and... Well, he was thought to be one of the biggest abusers in Britain. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, but horrific sexual abuse. And all the kids in the home were incredibly vulnerable. He picked the most vulnerable, the most remote from family. It was just horrible to hear. Eventually he was convicted, but he was convicted for a few kids. And what we did was go and interview the people who had initially got him convicted because we'd heard that more people were coming forward. And what we found out was that when they initially went and complained and went to police after they were released, Kevin, when he'd been to the police station, he was told, you're talking about a prison guard, you'll probably end up in prison. And we wrote about it in detail. And what it led to was, big operation. The investigation, which was called Operation Seabrook, um, led to more and more people coming forward uh, who said they'd been physically or sexually abused by Neville Husband. In the end, 1,600 people came forward.
1: later investigations led to major reform at the medway secure training center in kent what did you discover there and how is it working together on that one
0: well uh again this came from eric and it came from a fantastic whistleblower who's a priest called nathan eric did part of it for panorama and part of it for us And someone went in and showed horrible abuse, kind of, you know, physical abuse, people being taught of in awful ways by guards, records being cheated, and basically kids being slapped about. Now, the natural reaction of G4S, which ran the place, and the Ministry of Justice is to say, this is a one-off, it's a bad apple. So what we did was then go and look back to I think it was 10 or 11 years earlier, and the same abuse had been going on. And um, there had been complaints with names being named, people coming forward, and they were ignored. So, what we did was we went back to some of those kids. There were two wonderful girls who were now women one called Layla and one called Ronnie. Ronnie was like 15, I think, and was allowed to miscarry in her cell, and no one did anything.
2: The night I miscarried, um, it was different night staff on. Um, She came to me, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Literally, I was in pain. I had blood everywhere. I didn't know what to do with myself. I knew what was going on, but I didn't want to believe it in my head. And then she took about 25 minutes just to come back with about another three or four staff. And she gave me two sanitary towels and told me to go back to sleep.
0: Layla was beaten.
2: When they come, it was it had been snowing but it had been really icy, so the whole of the green was icy. One of the members of staff, he uh, dragged me out of the sports hall. He grabbed me by, by my hair and he was like slamming my face off the ice, swearing at me. And um, it took them about an hour and 45 minutes to get me in.
0: And we told their stories. So that meant that G4S and the Ministry of Justice couldn't say it was a one-off. It was shown to be structural. And it led to G4S losing their contract and saying they were getting out of children's detention.
1: Simon, so many of the injustices you exposed together are about the treatment of children in the prison system. What difference did your work make together, do you think?
0: We don't think things have improved for children. And the reason we know is because one of the best things we did was go out to Spain to see an alternative system. And these were the same as the places in Britain, which we called Children's Secure Centres. In Spain, it was incredible because it was social workers running them. They were the most humane, loving people you could imagine. They were young people, they were idealistic. And the kids there had nearly all committed really serious crimes. Lots of them had killed people, some had been convicted of murder. They told us that none had gone out and committed crimes again, which was astonishing. And we talked to them all and they were the nicest kids you could wish to meet. And Eric was crying. He was crying because that was the system he knew that was possible and we could have. That's what Eric was campaigning for, really. One was that he thought less people should be in prison because the numbers are going up and up and up. I remember when we started working, there was 70,000. It's about 90-something now. And another thing is that the few children that need to go to prison should come out rehabilitated.
1: Coming up, how much have prisons changed? Simon, from everything we've learned about Eric, he was determined to expose how our criminal justice system, how our prison service, it just doesn't work. But for defenders of that, they would say that he was also an example of someone who made it out in a way. How would he explain that to people on the outside?
2: You know, on a couple of sentences, I came out boiling, boiling, boiling with rage. And I was able to rationalise it and reason it. But what about the boys and the men and the women who come out now boiling with rage? Where's that rage going to go? I'll tell you where it's going to go. It's going to go on society. So that's why it doesn't work.
0: Well, I think the very fact that we're talking about him today shows that he wasn't one of many. And yeah, some people do come out of prison and, you know, go on to have good careers, or good jobs or happy lives but far too many people and this is what he wanted to show go into prison and simply learn how to be better criminals and that he felt had to change he also felt what had to change was that we put pre- people in prison who were mentally ill that was a lot of our work and we put particularly women we put women in prison who shouldn't be in prison they they nicked something from a supermarket they went into prison with kids you know, Eric was Eric was an exception. He worked on the Shannon Trust Literacy for Prisons. Eric and I used to go in and talk in at Pentonville Prison, help them with their magazine called The Voice of the Ville. He was involved with the Prison Advisory Service. There were so many charities he was involved with.
1: And he was dogged. And I wonder, during the course of his lifetime, did he feel that prisons had gotten better?
0: It's quite interesting because I saw an interview where it was about 12 years ago and he said prisons were better than when he was a kid. And I think what he meant by that is that no one would go into prison and be thumped by a guard. But I wonder if I asked him now if he would think they'd really improved because what we've done is look into lots of kids' prisons where people were thumped, where people were beaten, where people were dangerously restrained. Sure, it might not have been in front of the police officer, but it was still happening. So have prisons improved? If they have, it would be minuscule and there are so many ways they can improve and there are templates out there and there are role models to show us how we can do it if we're willing to put in the time and the imagination.
1: Eric was, of course, the country's first prisons correspondent, but when you look back and read his work, it becomes clear, actually, he seems more of a prisoner's correspondent rather than... Just the prisons one. How do you think his work sits against other journalism on the criminal justice system and with other crime correspondents?
3: Well, I think that he was really a kind of champion of the dispossessed and a champion of people who had no voice. And I think what makes Eric stand out is that he never picked kind of the low hanging fruit of stories, the kind of story that you can easily knock off in a day or two, that the news desk will kind of immediately understand. If somebody rang you up and they were in trouble, He would never promise that he would do a story for them, but he would do his damnedest to help. Seven days a week, he'd have kind of mums ringing, crying about their um, young lads who were in prison. Um, So he was was a real advocate for people who he thought had been wronged and who needed his help. He was a champion of the
1: vulnerable and the dispossessed. What did he teach you professionally and personally?
3: Well, I loved Eric. I'm going to cry now. Oh, no. Um, hold on.
1: I'm sorry, Helen.
3: No, it's okay. I thought I was, I thought I was okay about it now. Uh, Eric divided people into two categories. There were the proper people, and then there was everybody else. And whenever there was anybody new coming into the Manchester office, he would kind of peer around his computer and say, help are they a proper person or not and proper people were people who cared and people who wouldn't turn a blind eye to abuses and things that had gone wrong so he definitely he definitely taught me that when i first worked with eric in the manchester office like i was in my early 30s and my love life was a complete car crash but he took a great interest in my love life and uh, I finally announced that I'd met the man that I thought was the one and Eric said to me we'll see about that hell and he de- he demanded an audience uh, with my intended Ian uh, which took place um, in, in a pub in South Manchester and um, Ian was quite nervous about this meeting and Eric sort of said should we go outside and then you know interrogated Ian and uh, the next day um, in the office he kind of looked over his computer again and said he's a proper person you can marry him
1: Simon why is his loss so significant
0: when he yeah when he died i, I thought i felt really proud of him because he'd come out from really a complete life of crime, 50 years of crime, and at 60 started as a journalist. And I just was thinking at the end, God, it was amazing. We we did get results. And I suppose lots of the time you want to do more of something, but I think so many of us go through lives in journalism and don't achieve what Eric did. But, you know, I'll... Mrs. Cole telling me that I've got to bet on Argentina in the World Cup because they're going to win it, which was his last bit of advice to me, even though he knew I never betted, was put your money on Argentina. They're going to do it, believe me.
1: (laughs) Simon, thank you so much.
0: It's a pleasure, thank you.
1: Eric Allison died on the 2nd of November, 2022, at the age of 79. You can find his campaigning journalism at theguardian.com. Eric Allison was not the only incredible Guardian journalist that we lost this year. In June, the brilliant Dom Phillips went missing in the Western Amazon with Bruno Pereira, an expert on indigenous peoples. Their bodies were found 10 days later You can read Dom's pieces from Brazil and beautiful tributes to him and to Bruno on the Guardian website, or listen back to the episode we made earlier in the year on the disappearance of Dom and Bruno to understand more. Ian Jack, the much-loved Guardian columnist, author and former editor of the literary magazine Granta, died in October, aged 77, You can read his brilliant writing and astute observations and learn more about his work on The Guardian website. Also in October came the death of the award-winning photographer and picture editor Eamon McCabe. His work spanned sport, news events and portraits and he photographed everyone from Harold Pinter to Desmond Tutu. A staggering 29 examples of his work are in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery. And again, you can see his work and tributes to him at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Safi Bougel. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Humer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.